For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Bonjour, Ben. You're calling in from Paris this time. <laughs> what the hell are you doing over there? Yes, bonjour. I'm at the Paris Peace Forum, which is a conference Emmanuel Macron set up last year, really to take the place of the United States. It's a conference on the future of multilateral cooperation with heads of state and nerds like me and a lot of worldos. I'm speaking tomorrow about disinformation and hate speech on social media. So we'll talk about one of our favorite companies, Facebook. Just came back from the French foreign ministry where a bunch of worldos were wandering around holding hors d'oeuvres and and drinking wine. So it's uh, very French. That's awesome. That's a great trip. Congrats on that. Most of my days have been in Des Moines because I've been working on a little mini series about the Iowa caucuses that I'm very excited to finally release and share with all you people, the good listeners. There's going to be five episodes starting on the 12th of November. We'll do one a week, and then there's sort of a floating fifth that we'll figure out how to cover in January when this race is really closing. But I'm just, I'm so excited, Ben, to get back to Des Moines and hang out with like field organizers on all these campaigns because these people are, they work so hard. They're so inspiring. They all have their own stories, and they are. They're what's good about politics. And we know when we read the news and we yeah. hear about Trump all day, it's depressing as fuck. And then you meet these kids and you remember why you got involved in the first place. So I hope everyone can get a piece of that experience for this show. So I'm excited to do it. Yeah. I don't know how many times I heard Obama say that the reason he became president is because of, you know, a few hundred field organizers in Iowa, right? I mean, like literally like 20 somethings, if that changed the world, right? And that's what Iowa totally. always means to me is like that it makes, if you can't be idealistic about politics, when you watch what young people do in Iowa, then you're not looking hard enough. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right, let's go international and uh, talk about what we're going to cover today. So we've got Evo Morales in Bolivia, some pretty seismic events in Latin America. We're going to talk about Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey's visit to the United States, fresh off his ethnic cleansing, uh, a Brexit update, some interesting reporting on how the Russians are interfering in African politics. We're going to talk about an amazing organization called the White Helmets and some sad news about one of their founders. Uh, U.S. business ties with Saudi Arabia. The Israelis have started taking out terrorists, I believe, in Gaza. So we're going to keep an eye on that. And then some fun personnel news out of the White House. So lots of good stuff today. And then our guest today is our second former prime minister. Uh, we had Kevin Rudd of Australia in studio to talk about a lot of U.S.-China relationship, but then a really interesting conversation about the Murdoch family and the way countries with Murdoch-led newspapers and TV sh outlets and you know radio stations have some of the most messed up politics on the planet. What yeah. a coincidence. So stick around for that. You won't want to miss it. No, it's, uh, the Murdoch stuff is good. People should, uh, he's got a good perspective. I didn't know, Tommy, that Murdoch owns 70% print media in Australia. That's tough. Yeah, not great. So, okay, let's start in Bolivia. So 
On Sunday, uh, the Bolivian president, Evo Morales, resigned. Uh, He has since fled to Mexico where he's seeking asylum, but promised to, quote, return soon with strength. There's a debate that we'll get into about how to define uh, his departure. Some say he resigned under pressure from a a popular uprising. Others say it was a military coup. We'll talk more about that. But let's just first get into who he is. So uh, he came to power in 2006. He's a socialist leader. He was very popular for a while and I believe was the longest serving leader in Latin America when he stepped down. He was also notably the first indigenous president in a country that uh, was majority indigenous, but had been ruled by like a small elite that mostly uh, were of European descent for hundreds of years. So he was, you know, an important populist figure. His downfall, though, is familiar to many people, I imagine, is that he, you know, he didn't want to leave power. And so at first he jammed through a proposal to change the constitution and do away with Bolivia's term limits for their presidents. Uh, And then there appears to be evidence that his party rigged last month's presidential election. The Organization of American States, which is a, a regional organization that brings together the 35 independent states in the Americas and is you know, very important and influential in the region, said that there were uh, clear manipulations of the vote and that it should be annulled. So that led to protests and ultimately the head of the Bolivian military called for Morales to step down. So Ben, let's pause there. Can you talk about who Evo Morales is, his legacy, and what you think his departure means for the region? Yeah, well, Evo was, you know, in the vanguard of a number of left of center leaders in Latin America, you know, after Hugo Chavez um, and Lula in Brazil and Correa in Ecuador. Um, And he was really seen as a a breakthrough figure, a hopeful figure, in part because he was indigenous. And he also took a lot of steps um, early in his term to really, you know, bring about more economic fairness to combat inequality. And he deserves credit. He was more effective in office than a lot of the other Latin American leftists. Um, I mean, people's lives got better. Indigenous people felt like they were part of society again. Um, Over time, he did show these kind of authoritarian tendencies, though, that we've seen where a leader thinks they're indispensable and starts trying to change the constitution to stay in power. And so there were these two sides to him. On the one hand, he did a lot for social justice. Um, on the other hand, he exhibited increasing authoritarian tendencies. And it all kind of came to a head in this recent election where you could tell he did not want to relinquish power. And the allegations of you know, kind of voter fraud were, were credible and from a variety of sources. And this is one of these very murky situations where on the one hand, you know, I think Avo and his supporters uh, have some claim that essentially a lot of the powerful institutions, including the military, got together and said, OK, this is it. Uh, on the other hand, the opposition is not wrong that there were clear authoritarian tendencies and clear and credible allegations of wrongdoing. Avo himself had already called for uh, another election. So he'd already kind of relented to the idea that the first election was flawed. Um, I think, his, again, his legacy is part of this kind of left-wing movement that uh, took off in the early 21st century. He was kind of at the vanguard of that. He did a lot, again, uh, for uh, poor Bolivians, but he leaves, right now at least, uh, in a kind of complicated situation where, um, you know, the country is leaderless and, and polarized. Yeah. Ben, a quick aside, you mentioned uh, Lula da Silva, who was the former president of Brazil, who has been in jail for about a year and a half. He actually just got out, but he's facing more charges. But did you see the video of him like working out and running on a treadmill, getting back in the game? Yeah, he, uh, you know, Lula was um, 
you know, he was kind of the the the, the leading edge of that vanguard I talked about. Uh, yeah, he looks like he's getting into shape. You know, uh, I'd watch out. He'll be back in politics. It was interesting to see Bernie um, embracing Lula's departure and then weighing in on Evo. You know, a reminder that kind of Bernie has ties down into the Latin American left that that go way back. Uh, yeah. So maybe uh, maybe Bernie and Lula uh, will will be cooperating in the future. Yeah, it was interesting. Okay, let's go back to to uh, Bolivia and to Evo. So th- I mentioned there was this debate about how to define what happened, and you 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 often find this uh, in particular on Twitter whenever uh, a leftist is forced out of power. You know, the question is: Was this a popular uprising? Does the clear role of the military uh, in in ousting Evo mean this was a coup? I guess the most obvious but important point here is that you and I have far from complete information, right? So we're not going to be categorical, and maybe it's impossible to do so right now. But, you know, some might also argue that, let's not get too hung up on the terminology, but I remember back in 2013, right after I left the White House, uh, Obama's team, uh, you guys got, you know, really wrapped around the axle about whether to call the Egyptian military's ousting of President Mohamed Morsi a coup, because though it clearly was, labeling it as such would have had major implications for the U.S.'s ability to provide financial aid, for example. So these words matter. They can have consequences beyond just the the language you used. Um, It's also worth noting that this question has split leaders in Latin America. Politicians in Mexico and Argentina have called it a coup. Uh, Carlos Mesa, the guy who wants to replace Morales and uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, the scary far right leader who's just awful, say it was a a peaceful protest movement. So, you know, you you see it on both sides here. Ben, where do you come down on this debate? And like, how important do you think it is to define what happened in terms of policy, but also in terms of just writing the narrative and and history of a country? Well, you know, like a lot of things in Latin America, you can separate this debate from the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my interaction with that history was, you know, negotiating with the Cubans. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the, the seminal event I attended the, of the Latin American left was Fidel Castro's funeral. Amazing. And I'll never forget sitting on the dais there as the only American official, the other Americans there were Danny Glover and Harry Belafonte. Um, <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, but there's Evo Morales and, you know, there's uh, Nicolas Maduro and there's, you know, uh, Rafael Correa and all these kind of Latin American leftist figures. And they've really shaped their politics against U.S. intervention in the region. And coups are central to that, right? Because the kind of iconic event to the Latin American left was the coup that removed Salvador Allende in Chile, mm-hmm. a CIA-backed operation uh, that killed Allende and ushered in you know, a military dictatorship. And so I think the reason these debates are even more intense in Latin America um, is that there is this history of left-wing politics that is overturned by right-wing coups. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the debate matters even more there. Um, when you look at this... I mean, I understand that the, both sides have things that they're right about. You know, um, you know, Evo's right that their actions were taken to, you know, essentially kind of oust him. The opposition is right that, you know, he was acting in undemocratic and authoritarian ways and that this election was deeply flawed. I don't think the reason I wouldn't, you know, land on a coup at this point is it's not like the military has taken power to keep it yet. Mm-hmm. We, you know, in other words, what happens now matters a lot. You know, if there can be some period of transition 
that results in an election um, that is credible, um, you know, then I think that's actually in line with the idea that the last election was flawed and we have to have another election. If, on the other hand, you know, the military installs somebody or there's some kind of undemocratic resolution to this, well, then it starts to look more like a coup. So, yeah. you know, I think it's hard to, to, to reach a final judgment now. You know, when, when, when the military in Chile, you know, killed the president and took power, that was clearly a coup. When the military in Egypt took power from Mohammed Mursi, that was a coup. And I think we made a mistake in the Obama administration in not calling it a coup. So, uh, but this one is a little bit more murky right now because it's not clear where where this is headed yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where everybody should focus their attention is this needs to head to an election that is open to everybody in which you know anybody can participate and whoever wins that yeah, election agreed. is in charge. Um, all right, let's hop around a minute. Uh, let's talk about our friends in the United Kingdom. So a couple of big stories. First, there's the news that Nigel Farage, who is the far-right leader of the Brexit party, has forged sort of a, a truce of sorts with Prime Minister Boris Johnson by promising not to run Brexit party candidates for against uh, conservative MPs. So basically, that means, you know, that that will help Boris in next month's election because he won't have people running against his guys who are serving in parliament. But it's not a total victory since the Brexit party is going to run for seats held by labor. And, and Boris Johnson wants to win those as well. So sort of a mixed bag here. Uh, Farage himself said he won't run, which is a victory for the world because he sucks. The second interesting storyline out of the UK is that Boris Johnson has refused to release a report on Russian interference in British politics until after their elections. And this report, uh, you know, it's it's leaking out a little bit. It apparently includes allegations that some Russian oligarchs have been funneling money to conservative party politicians. Uh, Obviously, this conjures the 2016 Russian interference in the US elections. And also, you know, it's important to point out that Russian social media bots supported the leave side of the Brexit campaign. I don't really think that's been truly discussed or understood well enough. Um, So again, Ben, we don't know what's in this report. It does seem like hiding it is creating more problems than it's solved from a PR perspective for Boris, because, you know, even Hillary Clinton has taken a shot at him over it. But any deep thoughts on any of these developments or generally how nervous you are or are not about this upcoming election? Well, in a way, they're kind of connected events, right? Because Farage has been, you know, uh, marinating in this stew of Russian-backed right-wing politics, right? And look, we know from a lot of good reporting that there was pretty extensive Russian interference in the Brexit election. You know, money kind of sloshing around uh, right-wing politics uh, in the UK, certainly a, a social media and disinformation campaign along the lines of what we saw in 2016. Uh, in the Brexit election, it's kind of interesting that that there hasn't been the same reckoning with that in the UK that we've had even in our own, you know, uh, bizarre witch hunt allegation kind of way in the United States. Um, I think it, it just goes to show that, you know, there's strange bedfellows for Brexit. And one of them is Vladimir Putin. And another is Nigel Farage, who's kind of like a you know, quasi neo-fascist, uh, you know, ideologue uh, grifter, um, and and so to me, like it just points up that you know, Boris is not in very good company here. Yeah, um, and he, you know, he'd be better off just you know opening this stuff up and uh, and revealing what they know about what happened because British voters have a right to know who's messing around in their elections, just like I think the Americans do. Yeah. Um, in terms of the election itself, though. 
you know, Jeremy Corbyn is a pretty weak candidate against Boris. And so Boris goes into this in a stronger position than he should be because he has kind of this splintered opposition between, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and then the Liberal Democratic Party that's taken a much harder line against Brexit. Uh, and then this Brexit party that is tacitly throwing its support to Boris. So, you know, strangely enough, like he he could squeak through here. Yeah. Uh, let's stick with the Russian interference theme here, but go to a different region. The New York Times had a really amazing piece uh, about how Russia has just brazenly meddled in a bunch of uh, African elections. And specifically, they talk about Madagascar's presidential elections. And uh, just read the piece. It's great reporting. But a few things worth noting. First, these guys didn't even really try to hide it. Like these were there were Russian operatives working there full time in a hotel. They were paying people off. They were printing their own newspapers. They were posting pictures on Instagram and shit. It's like pretty, uh, pretty hilariously haphazard in some ways. Uh, many of the same players from the 2016 effort were involved. It, it was a lot of the same tactics on social media and whatnot. They even recruited what the New York Times described as a cult leader to run as a third party spoiler. So that's interesting. Um, second, the goal of this interference in Madagascar appears to be just pure profit. They just want cash. Russia wanted to keep control of a valuable mine, uh, and this was how they did it. It wasn't some global game of risk. It was just greed. And then third, like they were pretty bad at it. Um, initially, the Russians backed one candidate. They tried to help him, didn't do very well at it, saw he was going to lose, then they just switched sides. So again, ham-handed, but you know, a part of a broader effort by Putin to gain influence in Africa, to push out the West, and generally like get a toehold everywhere. So, Ben, the, the part of the story that I found maybe the most fascinating was the source of the documentation that the Times reported on. The Times got these documents from something called the Dossier Center, which is a London-based investigative organization founded by Mikhail Khodorovsky, who you probably have heard of. At one point, he was one of the richest people in the world. He was probably the richest guy in Russia, but he got crosswise with Putin and ended up getting thrown in jail for nine years and now lives uh, in exile in London. So it was interesting to me just reading the report, hearing what the Russians are doing in these places, but also seeing these private organizations step in and expose this kind of corruption and, and not have a government do it, in part because there's enormous personal risk to anyone involved in an operation like this, because as we know, Putin will happily murder his enemies abroad, in, including in London. Yeah. And I, I think that's the key point here, which is that, you know, Putin feels such impunity. I mean, if people want to ask why go through the Mueller report and why make such a big stink about Russian interference, look, because Putin feels like there's no pushback. And so he's like, well, I've got this toolkit of, you know, goons and trolls and social media and money that I can throw around. And I'm just going to like take this show on the road, you know, as far afield as Madagascar from my fucking mining interests, you know? <laughs> and right. in a normal universe, the United States and the European Union and Japan and a bunch of countries would be spotlighting this and, you know, seeking to prevent it and seeking to expose it and, you know, seeking to, you know, buttress countries that are vulnerable to this against it. And instead, it falls to a guy like Khodorkovsky. Um, so part of this is just shows the the yawning gap of U.S. leadership that this guy is able to kind of maraud around the world relatively cheaply. You know, a little bit of Russian money can go a long way in a small country like Madagascar. You know, Khodorkovsky is a fascinating guy because, you're, you know, he was kind of a leading Russian tycoon. Putin strips him of everything, sends him to the gulag, 
takes the oil company that Khodorkovsky runs and hands it off literally to one of his school friends, <laughs> um, yep. making him in turn a billionaire. Um, and I got to say, like, kudos to Khodorkovsky for having the guts to do this. I mean, we've yeah. seen Russians assassinated in the United Kingdom. We, you know, we've seen mysterious deaths of people even in the United States, uh, who've opposed Putin's interests. Um, it takes some serious courage. And we, we talked earlier about the people who exposed the scheme in Central Europe in, in Austria to, you know, try to bribe some Austrian politicians. I mean, clearly the Russians are doing this everywhere. And if the U.S. government's not going to take the lead, other people are going to have to do their part in exposing this. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P 
com slash crooked world. All right, let's talk about Turkey for a bit. So about a month ago, as we've discussed in the show at great length, the Turkish military and Turkish-backed militia groups rolled into northeastern Syria and engaged in what can really only be described as ethnic cleansing of the Kurds, who were our closest ally in the region in the fight against ISIS. Um, ben, there's a report in the Wall Street Journal today that says uh, U.S. military officials possess drone footage of some of these Turkish-backed militia groups targeting civilians and committing war crimes. But, you know, you know who doesn't care is Donald Trump because he is welcoming Prime Minister Erdogan to the White House on Wednesday for a meeting and a press conference. And the last time Erdogan was in D.C., his security guards beat the shit out of American protesters and his goons faced no consequences whatsoever. So I'm sure Erdogan will be extra angry this time because, you know, the House of Representatives just passed a resolution recognizing World War One era genocide of Armenians by the Ottoman Turks, which is a, a huge uh, red line for them. But, you know, Ben, again, like I know Trump doesn't care about human rights. I know he will never admit that he got this Syria policy wrong, even though he seems to have backtracked on a lot of decisions he made earlier on. But What's crazy to me is that the one major crack in his support from Republicans was this issue of abandoning the Kurds. And it's mind boggling that he would have Erdogan come to D.C. on the first day of impeachment and just rub it in the face of Lindsey Graham and all his little lapdogs. It is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's astonishing. <laughs> you, know, you know, like this has got to rank in like the top five of the craziest things of the Trump years. And that's saying a lot. This guy literally just engaged in ethnic cleansing against the allies who helped us, you know, dislodge ISIS and get Baghdadi. Um, this guy is taking like a consistently and steadily darker authoritarian turn. There's no fucking reason to have this guy at the White House other than to like troll Trump's opponents, you know, and it should be humiliating to Trump, by the way, because basically this guy just played him in a phone call. Erdogan calls him, you know, gets him to pull back the U.S. military so he can go in and kick out the Kurds. Then Erdogan sits down with Putin in, in full view of the whole world watching this thing kind of divvies up, you know, northern Syria. And now he's going to show up with his goons. And I think you make the right point, which is like Lindsey Graham is going to be sitting there contorting himself to come up with whatever bullshit lying defense he can muster for Trump and impeachment at the same time that, you know, Trump is giving the, uh, the big middle finger to people like Lindsey Graham by having Erdogan. Lindsey Graham's whole modus operandi, his whole argument was, I need to do this. I need this relationship with Trump to make, to, to make good on the things I care about. Well, this is the thing that he said he cared about the most. Trump pulled the rug out from under him without telling him, did the opposite of what he said, and then invites the guy, Erdogan, who carried out the cleansing of the Kurds on the same day that he's going to be expecting Lindsey Graham to be his like chief defense attorney for impeachment. It just, you know, it's a, it's a story about how far Trump has fallen, but it should also be a story about how pathetic all these Republicans are who mouth protests to Trump's foreign policies but then roll over and do whatever he wants on things like impeachment. Yeah. Right before I walked in, I read an article where Erdogan said he was going to start releasing ISIS members back into their home countries, i.e. EU nations, if they continue to pressure him or sanction him over unauthorized oil and gas exploration in the Mediterranean. So real stand-up guy here. I can yeah. see why Trump likes him. <laughs> yeah. Well, Trump himself said send them back to Europe too. So, you know, he prefers the company of Erdogan to Merkel. 
Yeah, good point. Well, Jared Kushner has it handled. Don't worry. Um, one more story with a, a Turkey nexus. So a man named James Lamezera was found dead in Istanbul in Turkey. And he is important because he founded an organization called Mayday Rescue, which trained and funded uh, a volunteer group called the White Helmets that you guys might have heard of. Um, they are heroes. They have been rescuing civilians in Syria throughout the Syrian civil war at enormous personal risk. And it's just like, I just, I can't, you can't overstate uh, the amount of courage these guys showed. Uh, They also helped document Syrian and Russian airstrikes on civilians and chemical weapons use. There's an an Oscar winning documentary on Netflix called The White Helmets if you want to learn more and and you should really check it out. Um, So we don't know how he died, obviously, but I think two things. One, it's worth pausing for a second just to like sing the praises of heroic people when they deserve it. And two, I just want to put a pin in this story because um, he had some powerful enemies in Damascus and in Moscow. And uh, it's very weird that someone just seems to have fallen off a balcony or died in a very suspicious way. And I think that people should keep an eye on this one. Yeah. And you can't overstate the heroism of these people. I mean, uh, you know, they were already threatened by Assad. And then when the Russians came in, you know, there's been some pretty clear documentation, you know, that the Russians may have been targeting these people with their military strikes or targeting hospitals. And from a pure humanitarian interest, uh, these people continue to do their work. And I'll be, you know, I just want to go out of my way to say here that, and also probably we were frustrated by the Obama administration not intervening more forcefully in the Syrian conflict. I mean, we tried, obviously, to provide and did provide significant humanitarian assistance, but these people were in the eye of like a horrific storm. And it's worth people looking into just the level of heroism here because they, they weren't going to get you know, recognition. They weren't you know, interested in the political outcome of the Syrian civil war. It was clearly not going to go their way uh, while they were doing a lot of this work. They were just trying to help people. Yeah. Um, and I do think that you know, we don't know what happened, but you know, plenty of reasons to be suspicious. And I think there is this kind of growing. So while we talk about the Khashoggi murder on this podcast a lot, like you don't want to live in a world where suddenly people aren't safe, even in other countries. You know, yeah. people who've opposed dictators, whether they're journalists or humanitarian aid workers. I mean, this has to be a priority when we have a normal administration again. The, 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 this kind of basic boundary and foundation of kind of international law that that like people you don't do things to people in third countries um yeah. is fraying a bit and it's that should be frightening to everybody because it's these you know goons like putin and assad and, and erdogan you know who you know it's not enough for them to terrorize their own populations suddenly they're you know getting more belligerent to people in other countries and and we had ennis Cantor on this sh- podcast you know who had you know, he was nearly, you know, detained in Europe and his family was arrested in Turkey. So I think we got to watch the space around this case. But also, you know, I think the world needs to do more uh, to raise the alarm bells about the targeting of people inside of, of third countries. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up Jamal Khashoggi because that brings me to the next topic, which is Saudi Arabia. And I think this is all a piece of the story you're telling right now. So we've talked about the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi in a consulate in Turkey. We've talked about the Saudi-led civil war in Yemen. 
Uh, we've actually personally pushed candidates on whether it's time to rethink the U.S.-Saudi relationship. But the elephant in the room is they have a ton of oil and a ton of money. And that explains why Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is is not treated like a pariah. It explains why uh, business leaders go over to his investment conferences in Riyadh, despite the fact that these guys are just stone-cold murderers. And so there was a great example that played out on TV over the weekend. Uh, in an interview with Axios, the CEO CEO of Uber called the murder of Jamal Khashoggi a mistake, and he compared it to an accidental fatality in their self-driving car program. Now, he walked it back later. He clearly realized what he said was just an abomination. But look, the guy was doing this dance because Saudi Arabia is Uber's fifth largest shareholder, and a key Saudi official is on their board. And they're not the only ones. Netflix blocked an episode of Hassan Minhaj's show, Patriot Act, that criticized the Saudi government. And as these companies kissed the ring, the FBI last week arrested two former Twitter employees for spying and helping the Saudis break into the Twitter accounts of dissidents and regime critics. So, Ben, like, depressing but not surprising to see, you know, political cowardice from big corporations. But at some point, I hope that the reputational harm of doing business with someone like Mohammed bin Salman outweighs the cash flow. But it's going to take a lot of work from uh, angry people like us to get us there. Yeah. I mean, look, I I ordered room service. It didn't get here until the middle of this podcast. <laughs> I should say, that, what time is it in Paris right now? Like 11.45? It, it's, it's, like, it's like 11 o'clock at night. That's a mistake. Okay. <laughs> Killing a fucking journalist in another country is is not a mistake. It, it's what he intended to do. In, in fact, it was the Murder. opposite of a mistake. He intended to do it. Like we know that Mohammed bin Salman, from all the reporting, ordered this assassination. So for this guy to 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 use that kind of language to justify his craven, you know, prioritization of profit over. I mean, at least just come out and say, like, well, these are big investors. And so, you know, um, but to, to try to justify it by comparing it to some mistake in like Uber software or something was such fucking bullshit, you know? And, and, and I'm glad that you drew all these connections because one of the things the Saudis have been doing for a long time, they poured money. Everybody focuses on how they pour money into kind of lobbying and stuff. They, they, they invest money. They invest in real estate, but they've invested a lot in tech companies over the years, right? So a lot of these tech unicorns are coming up, got a lot of Saudi money. And at the end of the day, these guys, these tech executives, have to reckon with the fact that they can't, on the one hand, spout their libertarian ideology at us, while at the same time taking money and being funded by like one of the most illiberal leaders in the whole world. And, and I would like to think that there's a level of profit that's not worth it. It's not worth it, right? It, it, like You can still be a successful business without having to depend upon Saudi investment. You can still be a successful business without having to compromise like your core beliefs in this this kind of way. And and I would like to see consumers in this country put a little more pressure on because you know who is putting pressure? All these other governments. We've, we've talked about how China does it on the show. Now we look at how Saudi Arabia does it. Like it's not worth it. It's not worth selling your soul, right? Like we, we need to stand for some core values here. And I'd like to see our government 
do that more. I'd like to see our companies do that more. And when they don't, I'd let, you know, it falls to the rest of us to do it. Yep. Uh, one more kind of serious thing and then two lighter topics or at least lighter for Pod Save the World. So uh, early Tuesday morning, the Israeli government launched an airstrike that reportedly killed a senior leader of the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad group in the Gaza Strip. This was only the second targeted assassination strike in Gaza since 2014. I, I don't say only because there were more targets they missed. It's because uh, in the past, these kinds of targeted strikes have led to wars even. And so it's something that uh, has been treated very judiciously, relatively speaking. Um, in response, Gaza militants began to fire rockets at southern and central Israel. So Ben, I mean, it's this is interesting or, or fraught because it's happening as Benny Gantz is trying to form a government and Prime Minister Netanyahu is the one still calling the shots and executing these military strikes. But two, it's like, this is the kind of thing that we all should worry could spark the next major conflict in Gaza, in 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 the West Bank generally. And so it's something I think we need to watch and see. Uh, interestingly, Hamas is not as hardline as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group. They've actually uh, been trying to push for a ceasefire in return for some money from Qatar. So it's unclear how the Hamas will handle this new situation, but maybe they'll continue to enforce the ceasefire. But who knows? We have to watch. Yeah, no, these Gaza conflicts, uh, you know, they can be horrific and, you know, particularly horrific for the people of Gaza who end up like paying the heaviest price for them. And, you know, I it, it is a very delicate time to have such an unsettled political situation in Israel and then potentially have, you know, yet another full fledged war in Gaza. You know, and we've had one in 2008 and one in 2012, um, you know, both right after U.S. elections, actually, mm-hmm. uh, oddly enough. Um, and and look, you know, Israel has security concerns emanating from Gaza, particularly in the form of rocket fire. U.S. missile defense, the Iron Dome, has uh, helped mitigate those concerns significantly. But look, I we talked about this at J Street. I think there's a broader step back point to make here that the situation in Gaza is not sustainable. Um, the idea of keeping that many people in a completely uninhabitable situation, literally uninhabitable, um, the UN uh, finds uh, it's headed in that direction. And then picking off terrorist leaders and having a war every you know few years, uh, that's I, I think there are better ways to try to, to to get at both the humanitarian and security situation there. And so I, I hope that this doesn't escalate into full-blown conflict um, and that Hamas shows restraint and that Israel, Shows some restraint here, and that just because for the people in the in the middle of this, um, that's the last thing they need. Yeah, agreed. Okay, we'll conclude with two personnel things. First uh, is our friend John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor. NBC News reported that he did a private speech last week in Miami. And in that speech, John Bolton suggested that Trump's approach to Syria is motivated by personal or financial interests. Interesting. Uh, Also, Ben, today, I don't know if you saw this, but the New York Times has a piece about how the U.S.-Turkey relationship is being handled son-in-law to son-in-law by Jared Kushner and then Erdogan's son-in-law and some other cronies. So just put a pin in that one. It feels like Bolton could have been a source there. Also in the speech, Bolton apparently mocked Ivanka and Jared by saying Trump doesn't actually take them seriously and that they just want to prove their relevance to New York socialites. So I guess the crowd was like stunned by his candor. So Ben, uh, one, just 
wanted to make sure you got a chance to enjoy Bolton's comments. <laughs> yeah, Two, yeah, yeah. if John Bolton is willing to spill the beans in that level of detail, basically confirming the entire Ukraine saga yes. to a bunch of Morgan Stanley execs, imagine what this guy could tell us under oath at an impeachment hearing. I, this is what drives me so fucking crazy. And 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 you know, first of all, okay, the Erdogan thing is notable because that son-in-law is like reviled as the heart of the corruption in the Turkish system, yeah. right? So this is like Jared and MBS. Like th- th- these aren't just like son-in-laws or in the case of MBS sons. These are like odious characters. Yep. But beyond that, it's kind of like the the you know the rule of, of politics and media in, in this country is that if you if something is secret, it, it's newsworthy. Like everything John Bolton said, we all know. Mm-hmm. But because it had this kind of veil of secrecy around it, it was like private. Like somehow, you know, this becomes a big deal. But I think that the thing that is most appalling to me about this is just you. You've been the most high profile like congressional oversight that we've had in memory is happening right now, and you've been subpoenaed to come testify. And you can answer the call of a bunch of Morgan Stanley guys who are paying you down in Florida. You can sign your book deal, but you can't talk to the American people's representatives in Congress. That is utterly disgusting. And and we see it with all these Trump people. Like we saw it with Rex Tillerson, like chuckling it up with like Bob Schieffer about all the crimes he knows Trump committed at, at some event, you know, I think down in Texas. He can't, what, he can't come before the American people and tell them that like whoever the uh, Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous is can like write bo- whole books about this and can't tell people like there are there are uh, I know people say like well you know some things don't matter and he could be impeached and it won't matter if he's acquitted by Republicans if, if enough of these people came forward like Bolton who have seen what happens in the room when Trump is making decisions or engaging in corruption if they actually told the American people what they know like that could either lead to Trump being removed for office or could certainly impact his chances for reelection. Mm-hmm. So the fact that all these people will go chum it up in paid off the record speeches and books and stuff and, and won't just come out and tell the American people what they know is is one of the more acute, you know, moral and ethical failings of the of this time period. Yeah. I also just legally don't get how you can executive privilege and then go yap about it at a paid speech. But what do I know? I'm no lawyer. Seriously. Like, what? how does that hold up? I don't know. Okay. Last story. And this one is maybe the craziest thing I've read all week. So NBC News had an investigative report about a woman named Mina Chang, who is currently serving as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stability Operations. Um, The issue that they uncovered in this report is just wild resume inflation. So she claimed to be an alumna of Harvard Business School, but actually just attended a seven-week course. Similarly, she claimed to be a graduate of an Army War College program, but I guess really just attended a four-day seminar. She claims to have addressed the Democratic and Republican national conventions in 2016, but was actually at events in those cities at the same time that were not a part of the events. Lastly, she made a fake Time magazine cover with her face on it and seemed to claim that she was on the cover of Time. (laughs) There's actually a much longer list that really speaks to her competency and the the organization she leads. Ben, like this jumped out at me because... Clearly, these guys, do, they do zero vetting, not yeah. like light vetting, not limited vetting, zero vetting, because it would take you 30 seconds to figure out someone wasn't on the cover of time. That's not a hard thing to uh, run down. Second, if this random person can get through vetting and become a deputy assistant secretary of state, what do you think a trained Russian or Chinese intelligence officer is pulling off right now? 
Oh my God, I'm glad you raised that, right? Because like, I mean, it seems to be open season in the United States government, uh, particularly national security agencies, for anybody to get hired. I mean, like the only, if you read through the article, the only qualification this woman seemed to have is that like some friend of Mike Pompeo's like bid on something at an auction for her like charity that seems to do no charitable work. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think they're, they're, they're real security concerns, but like the vetting is astonishing, right? And this is like a bureau of responsibility for like conflict. And, and, and I mean, the disregard for the mission of the State Department by like taking this person who's so like obviously unqualified. I mean, the vetting issue is just like, if you had this tool called Google and you entered her name in, you would be able to ascertain in about 30 seconds, as you said, that half the things that she used to credential herself are not true. Like the thing she seems to be skilled at is photoshopping herself under a Time magazine cover and getting pictures with friends of the pod like Bob Yates and Dave Petraeus of like <laughs> random DC uh, social events. It's interesting how it's always the same people who turn up at these yeah, things. Yeah. But I think the other thing though, to be like slightly serious about this very funny thing that everybody should go read the story, it's happening at the same time that career State Department people are having to testify in an impeachment inquiry after decades of their service were uh, undermined and impugned by the Secretary of State and the President of the United States, right? So there's Pompeo, who's plucking this person who, who who's literally so obviously unqualified. Like, even if she wasn't inflating her resume, it's like she has no qualification for the job that she got, right? Zero. And, and there's this kind of casual disregard, like we have so little regard for the State Department that we'll put somebody like this in a, in a very important job, right? At the same time that we won't get the back of our ambassador in Ukraine, who's put decades of service uh, into the security and prestige of the United States, right? So it is this kind of thing that's like a silly, pretty hilarious scandal that is also like a window and something bigger about these Trump people. Yeah, there's a deep, deep rot in these agencies and frankly in the White House because we learned today in another report by the Southern Poverty Law Center that Stephen Miller used to email around like V-Dare and American Renaissance and the basically uh, Nazi slash KKK publications, like the furthest far right. But yeah. that's a story for a whole other day. Uh, ben, I believe that wraps our uh, segment all the way live from Paris. When we come back, our conversation with former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. 
Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. We're very pleased to be joined this week by the former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, who now leads the Asia Society Policy Institute. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. It's good to be here. Well, you know, you've obviously focused a lot on China, I know, made it somewhat of an area of of particular expertise over the years. We've talked a bit on this podcast about the trade war, mainly on how it affects American politics and Americans. Stepping back, though, uh, before we get into some of the specific details, what are the global ramifications for what's happening between the U.S. and China right now? Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I'm a bit of a China tragic. I've been at it for about 35 or 40 years, so... You were probably hanging around in pool halls. Uh, <laughs> I was learning my Chinese characters. Yeah. And sometimes I thought it would be much better to be in the pool hall. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is huge. I mean, I first went to live and work there in the um, mid-'80s. Um, so what does it mean, um, China's rise, but also the American response? China's rise, I think, if you put it in historical context, is a bit like this. It's, it'll be the first time when China becomes the largest economy in the world that a country will occupy that status, which is um, uh, not a democracy, which is um, not a Western country and is not an English-speaking country. Mm -hmm. And if we think that'll just be a normal old transition in a world, let's call it economic order, I think we're deluding ourselves. So I think that's the dimensions of what we're looking at. It's really back to when George III was on the throne and you guys successfully revolted. Yeah, worked out. (laughs) That's right. Then on the US front, I think it's a bit like this. If the great decoupling is in fact occurring, first in trade, um, but I think more interestingly in foreign direct investment, certainly in technology, question mark, capital markets, where will they go with the future of their own proposed international digital currency? But if this decoupling unfolds, if it unfolds, then it places America's uh, European and Asian allies in a, into a, an ultimate binary. We're not there yet. But if I was looking ahead a decade, it's binary land, which is the essential trade between your economics and security. Now, that's been a stuff for uh, interesting seminar topics up until now. But I find dealing with governments around the world, yeah. it's now in the central workspace of chanceries and foreign ministries. Yeah. Do you think it's possible, if you just take the tech piece, right, and what we've seen about Huawei, you know, where the Trump administration's effectively been going around the world trying to make a binary choice to U.S. allies, you know, either you use uh, Huawei or you use U.S. or Western technology. Do you think that's even possible, though? I mean, aren't the supply chains and uh, telecommunications in so many countries so tied up that it's, it's hard to decouple? I mean, Australia was put in this position, obviously. Do you think that the U.S. is asking too much and expecting countries to be able to make that choice? Well, in the future of 5G, which is, as you know, the pathway in part to the Internet of Things, 
it is a profound uh, step up, not just in technology, but in the applications thereof, and potentially transformation of large slices of the economy. So it's not a small measure. Yeah. It's a big uh, leap. Simply look at the speed intensity of where 5G is in relation to 4G. So it's fair to ask these questions by the United States, <clears throat> and it's fair to ask the parallel question, the extent to which uh, 5G, if it's Chinese run through a company like Huawei, uh, represents a national security risk to the United States and its allies, either through what can be had through the back door yeah. or through an ability to interrupt communications at critical times of national security crisis or challenge. Uh, if we're relying upon that infrastructure to convey messages, even of an unclassified nature. So I would say to the United States, it's fair for the United States to ask the question. What is a little unfair is the United States to say, uh, by the way, we don't have a technical answer. Yeah. <laughs> so we have no alternative, 5G no, alternative. No. Yeah. Yeah. For those, uh, for those uh, neoclassical economists listening to your podcast. Many who, out there. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure there are, <laughs> who, who believe in the, the invisible hand always being at work in the economy, and I'm a pro-markets guy, uh, every now and then uh, it just fails. And what's happened in this country is that um, as China, through industry policy at a national level, over a period of a decade or more, developed a leading edge in 5G technology, platforms and systems, the old spontaneous combustion on the marketplace here didn't work, nor anywhere else in the rest of the collective rest, ev yeah. West, even with Ericsson and Nokia. So there's our dilemma. Yeah. Mm. So President Trump has been uh, engaging in this trade war with the Chinese for some time now. He told us early on how easy it was to win trade wars. Uh, we've been ratcheting up tensions for months and months. It seems like maybe he's trying to de-escalate. Now, you've been sounding the alarm for a while that the potential impact of this trade war goes well beyond uh, domestic, political, or economic concerns in the U.S. and China. And there could be potentially major global ramifications. Can you explain what those could be? Well, let's just stick with the economy to start with. Yeah. And I've been trying to trace through what this term decoupling might mean of the two largest economies in the world. First thing to say, there is no historical precedent for it occurring because unlike the previous Cold War, there was zero economic engagement between uh, the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and the United States back then. Mm -hmm. Whereas... Um, China is now America's third largest export market, and the United States is China's largest export market by a country mile. Look at the size of the capital markets, which they share. We did the numbers the other day. It's about 5.1 trillion if you combined portfolio investments uh, into Chinese equity markets, Chinese debt markets, as well as China's holding of US treasuries as well as some American holdings in reverse yeah. of some Chinese equities and some Chinese debt. So these are very big numbers. Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, a fundamental decoupling driven by political national security concerns, the economic uh, adjustment will not be slow and gradual. Uh, it's more likely to be uh, hard and, uh, and wide and deep, such as the extent of the enmeshment across trade, across tech, and across capital markets over the last 10, 20, 30, 35 years. Now, for those reasons, I think uh, what we see with Trump most recently is uh, him uh, looking at where all this could go mm -hmm. and stopping at the edge of the cliff and saying, that's a real long way down there. <laughs> yeah, right. 
When I grew up as a kid in Australia, my favourite um, cartoon program was um, Roadrunner. Okay. Uh, Wiley B. Coyote. Classic. It was always my hero because he always used to screw up. <laughs> uh, and Roadrunner, who was just a smart ass. But um, you know the, the shots where they used to go screaming towards the edge of the cliff? Yeah. And then <laughs> Roadrunner would stop and Wiley B. would go sailing over. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Poof, little puff of smoke as he disappeared into the abyss. I think what happened this time is that China and the United States got to the edge of this cliff and said, they both stopped yeah. and said, that's a really long way down. So therefore, it's unclear to me where the decoupling trajectory will go to from here, given the likelihood of a phase one trade deal, the probability, but not the inevitability of a phase two deal sometime next year. As these two massive economies say, we're not sure that we can escape from a fundamental economic decoupling without fundamentally blowing half our brains out, yeah. respectively. Mm -hmm. yeah. We should mention that your book, uh, your autobiography, The PM Years, yeah. was out in August that details all your time in office uh, as prime minister, the various intense infighting in the Australian system. Never it's happens really, in America. No, no it never <laughs> happens in America, but it's, uh, it's kind of nice to know that, you know, that stuff happens in other places as well, though I don't know that anything is as awful. We as execute well. it as inelegantly as you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so everyone should check out the PM years. Ben and I have been talking a lot about, we've been sort of observing Xi Jinping from afar with no real insight into his thinking or, or system right now, the route of government. But you look at the trade war or his approach to Hong Kong, and it's hard to tell if that the Chinese are lashing out at companies like the NBA from a position of strength or whether that kind of behavior shows weakness. Hmm. Do you, wh what's your sense of Xi Jinping's relative power or sense of himself in China's place in the world? Can I give you a slightly nerdy answer to this? Yes, please. And give me a minute or two. You got 10. Which is, no, no <laughs> not that nerdy. <laughs> That's Old Testament rather than new. The, um, but, but what I mean is, step back, and I think you're question you raise is, what's Xi Jinping's order of priorities and how does he view the world? And where does Hong Kong, for example, fit within that? Mm -hmm. We often fail to do that. We're often guilty of just Western projectionism, like right. these guys think just like we do. Sometimes they do, but a lot of time they don't. Remember, number one, he's a Marxist-Leninist. Never forget that. We assumed that China becoming cute and cuddly over the last 40 years since dung and reform and opening, etc. That stuff's all gone. It hasn't. Um, he's a serious Marxist-Leninist and a bit of an emphasis on the Lenin bit. So number one priority for Xi Jinping is keep the party in power. Number two uh, is hold the country together. And that means Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong and the rest. This is my attempt at a Maslow hierarchy of needs for this guy. Great. Yeah. Number three, grow the economy, uh, because without increased living standards, we, the party, lose legitimacy. Four, sustainable growth now, because people are sick and tired of air they can't breathe. Right. Yeah. Five would be on China's uh, military, turn it into a competitive fighting force against the United States, to quote Xi Jinping, to fight and win wars, not just hold impressive parades. And that's profound. Yeah. And skipping through the last couple, six, turn its 14 neighboring states into benign strategic partners into the future and ultimately compliant hmm. because China has a history of its yeah. problems emerging from its neighbors. And the last few would be this. Uh, probably seven would be looking to the 
maritime periphery of the United States, with the United States, that's the Pacific Ocean, to push the United States back to what we would call in the literature the second island chain. Think of the map, draw a line between Japan up there, down to the Philippines down there. And of course the objective there is still Taiwan. So they want to push the United States back and ultimately fracture its alliances in Asia as well. People like us in Australia, Japanese, South Koreans. And on the continental periphery, in the other direction, to turn that into a new corridor of growth and strategic stability for them, hence the Belt and Road Initiative. Everything from the Russians and the land border they share, which is now fixed, across the vast Eurasian continent, into Eastern Europe, where China now has a huge footing, and frankly, prospectively, into Western Europe as well. So where, where does all that, therefore, fit with Hong Kong? In that list I've just run through, it's kind of up there as a part of priority number two because it goes to the integrity of they see to the Chinese state. Is it weakness? Because the Chinese, it is because the Chinese still feel vulnerability in terms of the ultimate legitimacy of the party. Mm-hmm. And if you have within the Chinese-speaking world, whether it's Taiwan as a functioning democracy or whether it's Hong Kong, given its own unique status, saying we want a different form of political system. This is a problem in terms of uh, Chinese central political control. When the leadership change happened from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping, you know, what I remember you know, in noticing in 2013 in the first meetings we had with Xi, you could tell right away he was a more assertive leader, both mm. in his personal demeanor, but also in the way he talked about things. You know, we've talked about the Nine Dash Line, in which they claim essentially the entire South China Sea. You know, he was suddenly talking about that as Chinese leaders used to talk about things like Taiwan and Tibet. You know, it was, there was a kind of more robust definition of, of what is a red line in mm. terms of a part of China. But then if you look at the last couple of years in particular, the reaction in Hong Kong has obviously gotten a lot of attention, including the nationalism in their own media, state media, mm. um, but also the efforts against the Uyghurs have really escalated to, to the point where you now have, you know, uh, reportedly a million people in camps. It does seem to show a kind of more aggressive internal focus on perceived internal threats, but also on kind of stirring up a sense of nationalism you know, through their state media. Mm. I mean, do you think that, to you, has that been a discernible shift to become kind of more nationalist and to kind of ride that nationalism into efforts like uh, what's been happening Mm. to the Uyghurs or what may account for kind of some more aggressive rhetoric on Hong Kong? Uh, Is that reflective of Xi Jinping or is that just kind of the broader global trend towards more nationalist authoritarian politics? I think my answer to your question, and it's a great question, Ben, is... How much is the Chinese system and how much is Xi Jinping? Yeah. In the last five years or so, what those of us who follow these things closely, we China tragics, uh, and study the entrails, is that what Xi Jinping has done is condense um, uh, the uh, timeline and accelerate the trajectory radically of where China was going, say, as of 2012, the end of the the Hu Jintao period. And your observation, uh, as you reflected your time with President Obama in dealing with uh, Xi Jinping, is right. He's confident. uh, He's assertive. And if you want a key date point where things changed for the system, it's about November of 2014, 
where there's this major conference called the Central Party Work Conference of the Party Central Committee. Yeah, and uh, exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's where <laughs> yeah, yeah. all the funsters yeah. go. Yeah, there's popcorn, there's stuff, and you know, and uh, two-hour speeches. Yeah, yeah. two-hour yeah. speeches, etc. So, and basically, it's a nerd fest for sinologists. Um, they never produced the full text of what was said there. People's Daily produced uh, an anodyne version of it, but the anodyne version was serious because it basically said this. Deng Xiaoping's doctrine of hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead, that's finished. It's now time for a much more assertive, self-confident Chinese international policy across the domains. Mm. In the five years since then, that's uh, November 14 to where we are now, November 2019, you've seen this, I think, profound shift, whether it's security policy, classical foreign policy, international economic policy, what China's doing, for example, in the UN system, which brings me to the Uyghurs. Look at this. Uh, There was a vote just uh, in the UN uh, Third Committee Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of October this year, 2019, on Uyghurs. The supporting states for a resolution drafted by the British, 23 Mm -hmm. countries, all Western. Mm -hmm. Opposing statements are opposing states led by that well-known international robust democracy, Belarus, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and... uh, (laughs) And our great friends in Minsk, uh, uh, 54. Yeah. And the 54 states were from right across the world. But here's the interesting point. Not a single vote in support of the uh, Western Resolution on Xinjiang from any country in Latin America, from any country in Asia, from any country in Africa, and from any country in Eastern Europe, including the the democracies of Poland, etc., um, and nor from any country is a member of the Organization of the Islamic Conference. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, let's call it, a Chinese diplomatic activism yeah. on their defensive strategy, which is avoiding criticism on the human rights in Xinjiang, these guys have been phenomenally active and against that measure, only a week or so ago, phenomenally successful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I am seized with this. Ben and I have been seized with this issue on this show because, you know, this is a crime against humanity. We're talking about a scale of millions of people being re-educated at best, at worst, tortured. There's reports that they might be forced into forced labor camps. There's a report that I read this week about the forced destruction of mosques and cemeteries and other Islamic sites. And, you know, you're seeing commentators start to compare this to the Holocaust because it is that sort of systemic scale of a destruction of a faith and a culture. And I feel like at a complete loss about what the pressure points even are or what a government should do about it. Like, it obviously doesn't help that Donald Trump could care less about human rights as a general matter and only cares about economic issues when it comes to China. But I guess... You know, if you were advising the White House or the UN or some body, like what to do to put pressure on the Chinese, where do you think that could come from? I think uh, the fundamental equation lies here, and you touched on it, um, uh, Tommy, in your question, which is the Chinese have made a long calculus about the nature of this U.S. administration and have concluded there is absolutely no priority attached to human rights, period. Remember, this administration decided to exit the Human Rights uh, Council in Geneva. Um, So attached is this administration to um, the 48 Universal Declaration on Human Rights and the subsequent UN covenants. 
And between those three documents, that's the whole fabric of international human rights law, yeah. those three core documents. So what the Chinese have done is a very simple, crude nationalist calculus that um, this is the season to do this because yeah. nobody is yeah. watching. And so take, for example, the, uh, the resolution I just referred to before. Uh, this was crafted by the British and the, uh, the other uh, Westerns. So there is a disjuncture at the moment between the Chinese deep calculus of what President Trump's administration is like, and when I look around and see statements by Vice President Pence, which talk yeah. about religious rights and civil liberties, and I look at statements in the speech just a week or so ago by Secretary of State Pompeo, the Chinese have worked out that those two individuals yeah. are speaking to certain religious constituencies in America. And they don't speak for Trump. And they don't speak for Trump. Yeah. And that's kind of the bottom line here. So, so long as uh, China sees an administration divided on these questions, that's kind of the reality for the future. Yeah. So if you project out here, in, in kind of what we've been talking about to step back is a situation where you have an emerging and much more assertive China that is aiming to project greater influence and has, you know, eventually a larger economy than the United States. A U.S. that, at least for the time being, and it could even continue under a Democrat in one form or another, dealing with that in part through this level of decoupling and this question of, of how much that will happen. If you take a country like Australia, what, what position does that put Australia in, right? Because we've seen, you know, traditionally, obviously, Australia is one of the closest allies of the United States, um, share a political system, share a set of values. Uh, yet at the same time, China is a source of huge investment in Australia trade. There have been scandals around potential Chinese political interference in Australia. What is it like to be a, a smaller country, you know, a medium-sized country in the Asia-Pacific region that is a bit caught in between, that has got kind of a natural affinity towards the U.S., but an increasing connection to China? What does an Australia do about that? What is, if you're an Australian policymaker, politician, you're trying to project out the next 20 years, what does this do to your place in the world? Um, about a decade ago, when I was uh, first elected as prime minister, I um, described to various American political leaders uh, our unfolding dilemma, which is the first Western canary down the Chinese mineshaft. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's kind of what it's like, because we are who we are, and you know, because we watch too much American television, we're yeah. too much like you guys, you know, we're kind of... <laughs> Roadrunner fans and the rest, uh, through The Simpsons and on to um, South Park and most points in between. We love Mad Max, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, Mad Max has got attitude. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the bottom line is, you know, this is, if you've spent any time in Australia, uh, you'll know that it has a whole bunch of characteristics similar with this country. So that's, that's just the reality. Now, geography uh, is part of, um, let's call it wider East Asia. So... What's the core dilemma for not just Australia, but other American allies in um, East Asia, but prospectively casting forward, um, depending on the long-term success of the Belt and Road Initiative, for your European allies as well? Yeah. Because China is becoming a defining point in all your allied relationships, all 48 of them around the world. Yeah. And so here is the essential dilemma. <laughs> Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and others will run around the world and wave a finger at um, American allies saying, are you pointing soya beans ahead of freedom? 
To which uh, my response would be, that's terrific, Secretary of State Pompeo. Why did you kill uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and why did you kill TTIP, the proposed free trade agreement with the Europeans? Because if you're going to run around to allies around the world and say, thou shalt not have a more extensive economic engagement with this massive emerging China market. Oh, and by the way, we want to cut off prospectively uh, greater access for American allies and partners to the American market. Yeah. Ultimately, that doesn't compute. Yeah. It's asking people to be virtuous in their souls and pretend um, that there's not going to be economic cost to pay. So the response, I think, is, uh, frankly, if America is still the leader of the free world, that is, open societies, open politics and open economies, then we collectively, as friends and allies, need to open our economies to each other. That, I think, is the message which allies around the world want to hear, but from this administration are not. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get the opposite. Can we talk about a, a close mutual friend of ours and yours, uh, Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> he is great buds, Rupert. You, yeah, he's a wonderful man. Um, you called him... The, oh, he's, he's on my speed dial, I don't know about yours. <laughs> <laughs> you called him, quote, the greatest cancer on the Australian democracy, which I feel like you could do a find and replace for Australia and for the United States. We deal with Fox News. Can you help people understand how Murdoch has, you know, become a cancer on uh, the Australian political system? Because I have a feeling it might sound familiar to folks. Yeah, and people might not know the the Australian backstory of Murdoch, you know. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, Rupert Murdoch's an Australian. So he, um, his father, Sir Keith Murdoch, um, was um, a publisher as well, but not with a huge reach within Australia. Murdoch built the Australian Murdoch um, empire, news empire. Um, And as of today, uh, Murdoch controls 70%, 7-0 of Australian print readership. Wow. Um, 70%. 7-0. That is unbelievable. Uh, Yeah. Having been prime minister for centre-left government in the country, it is unbelievable. (laughs) And uh, because you get to discover your own personal new crimes against humanity every morning when you wake up and read the paper. It's kind of like... The New York Post everywhere, yes. yeah, yeah, <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. Yes, it does. So that's it. But I think it's uh, beyond Australia, of course. You know, the reach here in the United States, your listeners are well familiar with that, of which uh, Fox is, of course, uh, the principal example. If there was no Fox, I don't think we, we would have had a Tea Party. Yeah. And if there was no Tea Party, we wouldn't have Trump. Yeah. And so the causations here are profound. But Brexit, too, you could say. Skip across thing. the yeah. ditch. Yeah. I mean, the control of both the sun and the Times, and uh, the other outlets he's had in the United Kingdom, has had a profound effect there. So for the, let's call it the English-speaking world, uh, this impact on the, uh, let's call it the uh, the radicalization of the far right, uh, both on economic policy, anti-climate policy, and the politics of race, has been the same in these three countries. Interesting side point, which country is not like that? Canada, because yeah. there's no Murdoch presence. Right. So on the receiving end of Rupert, it's uh, it's really tough. If you're a centre-left guy um, or woman trying to run a government there or get yourself elected, you try and talk to them, you try and minimise the incoming uh, missiles which are going to come in your direction. And Murdoch's uh, modus operandi is very plain. If he thinks you're defeatable, he will marshal all resources to kill you. That's what he did uh, in relation to myself. Yeah when I was uh, up against the uh, Prime Minister John Howard, 
When he works out that you're unstoppable, he will then have a temporary peace treaty mm. uh, until he works out how to kill you once you're in office. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the method that I see both in relation to myself, certainly in relation to the United States, and certainly in relation to um, Blair and Brown's Britain as well. Yeah. So what is animating Rupert Murdoch? I mean, we can see the wreckage, right? And here it's Trump, in the UK it's Brexit, in Australia you've had a very kind of destabilized politics for hmm. a few years, and a, the far right in all those countries has become increasingly focused on race. There is a, a constant, consistent element of climate denial. But what is this about? Is this just a guy who figured out that there's profits to be made in this kind of crude nationalism? Or is there really an animating ideology behind Murdoch and this media empire he's built? I mean, as someone who's known him and... and, and you know, I spent a lot of time from, with yeah. uh, Murdoch over the years, uh, too much. And he would say the same, by the way, with <laughs> me. But I think it's a bit like this. He is not a profound uh, political philosopher, Rupert Murdoch. He went to uh, Oxford. But frankly, his um, worldview comes from a central organizing principle called profit. And that is, how do I maximize my profits? I think about that for 30 seconds, and it says, I minimize the tax I've got to pay. Mm. Oh, and by the way, I also minimize the wages I've got to pay yeah. uh, to my employees. So if you look at the footprints of this guy across the world, Profit maximization, but also running campaigns uh, about uh, bringing taxes down as much as possible, both personal income tax, but also company taxes that affects him, plus uh, labor relations regimes, which accelerate deunionization, de de uh, decelerate collective bargaining power from workers, etc. That's where he comes from. Why? Because he wanted to become a billionaire, and mm -hmm. he did. That's how he did it. Mm -hmm. So the ideological step from that into, let's call it, the brave world of, um, of Hayek and a Hayekian view of the world, which is a minimalist state, a maximalist market, is essentially uh, the Murdoch worldview. And then when you look to climate, he would just say, yeah, that's just right. going to interview with profits. Right. And, if I, and if I, Murdoch, look at the question of the politics of race, well, if the politics of race helps my conservative buddies get elected, yeah. then I will provide a willing megaphone to amplify that for their benefit. So pretty so, cynical. Uh, yeah, so yeah. you think he just uses racism as a tool? It's not, it, there's no personal driving animus? I think he just sees it um, as a political tool. I mean, you guys know as well as I do that uh, the potency of the politics of race in both the, you know, the cerebral cortex and the amygdala of uh, voting publics in most of our countries yeah. is huge. So what do the conservatives do? They say, ah, that's interesting. How do we use it? Are we on the centre-left say, uh, that's ugly. Um, how do we manage it and reduce it? Yeah. That's essentially it. So whether it's uh, refugees and asylum seekers, whether it's broader immigration, whether it's domestic race relations in here in the United States in terms of African-Americans and Australia, Indigenous Australians, etc., you can see a very strong continuing hand, which is always to give a hand up to the conservative side of politics. One final thought is this, though. If you are a conservative politician, United States, UK, Australia, going to the people, it's pretty hard to stand up and say... I stand for lower taxes for companies and really rich people. Yeah. I stand for making your university educations harder to get because they're going to be more expensive. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I want to screw your public health care as well. Yeah. This generally, we would say, doesn't sound very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you mask that? Yeah. The masking device is always 
frankly, the fear and anxiety, very potent emotions animated by the specter of race. And we know how this is used exquisitely in this country, uh, but in my country, Australia, in the UK, much the same. Yeah. Again, people could read a lot more about these fights with Rupert and others in the PM years in great detail. But you also talked about how you had to deal with these massive multinational mining corporations that fought effectively to kill off any action on climate change. And you talked about how they, too, had an umbilical cord relationship with Murdoch and his media empire. Can you explain that? What was that corporate interest and tie? Well, the bottom line is because Australia is Australia and it's been a big mining country for 150 years and it's been a large source of accumulated national wealth and we have hugely efficient mining corporations, many of whom do a first-class job at that, but also in terms of their workforces as well. So it's not that the mining industry per se is bad, but when you look at some of the really big players, like Rio Tinto, uh, and look uh, like a BHP Bulletin, and a couple of the others, their track record on two things, paying taxes and acting responsibly on climate and the environment are generally pretty terrible. So... Along we wander as the incoming uh, reformist uh, centre-left government of Australia and say, wouldn't it be a good idea if you guys started paying more taxes? Um, because, uh, frankly, uh, you're getting away with blue murder here. And uh, so we introduced something called a resources super profits tax. Of itself, not hugely offensive. It just meant that if you are earning mega profits, yeah. which we measured in normal corporate accounting terms, because of surges in commodity prices at a given time, that a greater slice of that would come back to the taxpayer and to the community at large. They then organised a massive campaign, uh, literally uh, tens of millions of dollars, uh, to, with one objective, which is to destroy that and my government as a result. So their ability to organise, but to also walk in lockstep with an organised campaign with uh, Murdoch's uh, media mastheads, was synchronised on a daily basis. Mm. As soon as we'd resolved one problem with the mining industry, uh, the mining industry peak bodies, peak um, industry associations, would then organise the next day's media drop uh, through the um, Murdoch mastheads to set you up for the crisis of the next day and the day after and the day after that. And because it's such a dense concentration of media ownership and you've got separately a massive television advertising campaign run by the mining industry wanting to uh, hang you, draw you and quarter you, it gets a bit tough out there in the retail sure. politics. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> the PM Years is out now. Uh, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, thank you so much for being here. It was a, we're just racking up yeah. Prime Ministers, Ben. This is, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is yeah. much more impressive than I ever thought this show would yeah, be. So yeah. thank this you for great. joining us. You've yeah. had other Prime Ministers on, have you guys? We just had Cameron on, so yeah. All oh, right, so okay. Yeah, I saw him the other day. Hey, yeah. Trudeau. Yeah. And, yeah, we're You're next. On Trudeau, yeah. That's Trudeau. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sorry, I've got very plain yeah. socks on today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I sort of. I have no socks on. Okay, well, that's super hip of you, Ben. I'm still of the socks generation. Thank you again. Good to be with you. Thanks. All right, buddy, I hope that um, room service hasn't been staring you in the face for this whole conversation. Yeah, it, it came in like she saw the door, but I managed to not humiliate myself. <laughs> okay, good. Well, uh, it was during my April Morales interest. I hope my April Morales interest didn't suffer because of the future. Honestly, it didn't, and we're keeping all this in. <laughs> Chow down. See you next week, right. and have a good one. Yep. Yeah.
Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. 